Hi, this is Sylvia Purdy here. I'm recording the first video for my Life, the Universe and God series on Ecotheology. Planet Earth is in a bad way. I had an interesting email chat with a friend of mine when I sent him the study on Ecotheology. He thought that that was too negative, an opening line. He wrote, is Planet Earth really in such a bad way? Is that the opening you want from a Christian theological point of view? By contrast, he wrote, I see the earth as an almost miraculous, self-sustaining and self-repairing system of exquisite beauty, notwithstanding the abuse that it suffers in certain regions. So I'm asking you, how do you see planet earth? What state is it in? If you share a Christian faith, how does your faith in God shape your relationship with the world? What does God have to do with life, the universe, and everything, as the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy puts it? Welcome to our discussion series on eco-theology. Every flavor of theology stands somewhere. Eco-theology stands on the earth. Like Moses, God tells us to take off our shoes for this, this planet, is holy ground. So dig your toes in, feel the earth beneath your feet. From there, reach up your hands in praise. Eco-theology suggests that God might not only be up, but also under. Not only within, but also around. This six-part study suggests a framework for a Christian understanding of life, the universe and everything. It has come out of a bit of reading and reflecting on my part, which I'm privileged to do this year, as I'm taking the year out from church ministry to study. I'm currently writing up some research into why, why Christians care about the environment. Motivation for eco-mission. I wrote this study during the COVID-19 lockdown, so I've included some points of connection between the pandemic and care for creation. What else would you like to know about me? My name is uh, Sylvia Purdy. I was born in Fiji. I'm a Presbyterian minister married to an army chaplain. So we currently live on an army base out of Christchurch in the fabulous Aotearoa, New Zealand. I'm recording these talks up in the Southern Alps at a stunning place called Castle Hill in the middle of winter. There's been a little bit of sunshine today. We have three fabulous young adult sons and a foster daughter who are, who are all making their way into the world. But don't you feel for young people these days? How can they possibly feel positive about their future? If current trends keep tracking out, it is seriously bad news. If the universe is just random and self-generating, there is no room for God. If there is no room for God, then there is no reality other than what we can see and touch. And then, indeed, the planet is in a bad way. If there is no room for God, the, to quote my friend, the miraculous, self-sustaining and self-repairing system of exquisite beauty that is planet Earth could be permanently and irreversibly stuffed up by what people are doing to it. Our eco-theology starts at the balance between fear and hope. We seek hope, we long for it. Some in the church are saying that the only hope is beyond all this. 
forget about this life, this planet, this universe, they say. God is going to remake it all or not. And until then, our only responsibility is faith. Faith in Christ. So it really doesn't matter about the plastic in the ocean or the carbon in the sky. Just keep your eyes upon Jesus and everything else will fade away. It's a nice narrative. I mean, it's terrifying, but it's nice in its own way. If only it were biblical, I'd be teaching it too. The thing is, that is not the narrative of our Old and New Testaments or of Christian mission through the millennia. The story of God is a story of God getting involved in life, in the universe, in everything, in every detail. God investing himself in flesh and blood and rocks and fish. We care about this planet because God has dug his toes in, metaphorically speaking, of course. Jesus did not hang there on a cross of wood to buy us an escape route from the world. Salvation is not the extraction of our spiritual essence from the mess of it all. I don't think so. I don't think so. I think that God loves this planet far, far more than we ever can. God has a vital place for humanity on this planet. And tell you what, it is not as the destroyer and the polluter, the mess maker. That is not the job God gave us. So are you ready to jump in? There are six study sections and a wrap up in the end makes eight videos. Uh, so do keep watching and do download the study from my website. That's conversations.net.nz. Find some people to talk about it with. Because this study came out of my literature review for my postgrad work, it quotes lots of other people writing in this area. There's heaps of pointers uh, for further reading in there. It's a bit more dense, I guess, than I normally write, so don't rush through it. Take it slow. Each study has some suggestions of questions to ponder or discuss and ways to pray. For this introduction, start a sentence with the words, planet Earth is. When you look at the world, what do you see? And invite the Holy Spirit to open your eyes, open your ears to what is true, to what is going on, and most importantly, to what God is up to in it all. Hi, this is Sylvia Purdy here, recording this um, second video in my series on life the Universe and God, my studies in ecosiology. Uh, this is uh, study number one called God is Creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the beginning of the beginning, the first line in our Bibles. The Nicene Creed begins, we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth of all that is, seen and unseen. Upon these twin realities, everything exists. On the one hand, God, God who creates, who is creator. On the other hand, the universe which is created, which is creation. 
God who is unseen, the earth which is seen, tangible and intangible substance, heaven and earth, spiritual and physical realities, all held together. John's Gospel begins, all things came, all things came into being through Christ. Not one thing came into being without him. In him was life, wrote John. All life is through and within and wrapped up in the being of God. These are big ideas, foundational ideas. Let's grasp them, explore them and see where they take us. I'm asking you in this first study to hold in your mind the vastness of it all. That's perhaps a little easier when you're up here in the mountains of Aotearoa as I am today. It hurts though in a way in our brains to hold together every galaxy and every atom. I know, I don't know about you, but for me, I operate normally in such a tiny zone of attention. It, at the beginning of my day, I notice the warmth of my duvet, the frost on the lawn, my tea and toast, and open my laptop and enter a digital world of text and artificial images. Considering the universe as creation calls me to pay attention to the real world, to lift my eyes from my screen and to notice it. It's like most of the time the natural world is just a painted backdrop for our lives, like those photo backgrounds that we've learned to use on Zoom meetings, as though the created world is just there to look pretty when we want it, but fades into insignificance behind our human world of cars and cafes and the internet. Paying attention to the environment as God's creation draws us into relationship with us, confronts us with the idea that other living things have their own life and value, quite apart from what use we might make of them from time to time. God created the heavens and the earth. In Christian theology, both spiritual and tangible reality is all created by God. The physical as is just as capable of expressing God's truth as the spiritual, the intellectual, the emotional. Our problem is we've put God into a spirituality box. Let him out. Let him be Lord of everything. I like this statement from one of my old theology textbooks. Despite everything, the created world we live in is a good world and it is good to be alive in it. Christians do not affirm the world because they are optimistic about the world as such or unrealistic about the suffering and injustice in the world or Mr. Guthrie might have added or the pollution in the world. They affirm it because God says yes to it. An otherworldly religion may seem very pious, but it is not Christian, wrote Mr. Guthrie. So the universe is God's creation and God is the creator of the universe. I can't really imagine any Christians disagreeing with that, but we do disagree, don't we? And it breaks my heart. We argue 
And the whole creation versus evolution argument has damaged our credibility, our unity and our mission. I'm not going there in the study. I'm, I'm looking for common ground. I'm interested in what the Bible has to say as a whole, not just arguing about this or that verse. This study is not about how God created the universe. You can do your own reading and thinking and praying about that. But one point I want to make for this study is it concerns me that the church has separated out creation from salvation. I wonder if we've made the story of the universe so far into a three-act play. First came God the Creator and creation. Then came Jesus Christ and salvation. Then came the Holy Spirit and mission. But when we do that, it relegates planet Earth to an act of God a long time ago. And it hides from us the biblical truth that God is together and at the same time creator, redeemer and sanctifier together as three in one at the dawn of time as much as in the present moment. Creation is not just something that happened. It's still very much happening, just as important in two in 2020 as ever, maybe even more important in 2020 because it is under real threat. In the study, I'm asking you two challenging theological questions, something to really get your teeth into. First is a question about how God, the Trinity, is creator. When you think about God creating the universe, however that looks for you, what aspects of God were involved? How did all three persons of the Trinity contribute to creation? How are they still involved in creation? Second is more of a so what question. The Bible affirms God as creator, but why is this important? What are the implications of this for us here and now? Well, what difference does it make? And I'm inviting you to pray into this very old and very simple prayer we call the doxology. Sit with it, line by line, just stay with it. See how it holds together spiritual and tangible realities, heaven and earth above and below. See how the movement flows back and forth from God as creator to the universe as creation and builds into a great song of praise. I'll try singing it for you. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Hi, this is Sylvia Purdy here again for, uh, this is study number two in my series of Ecotheology, Life, the Universe, and God. 
Uh, I'm here in Castle Hill and it's the sun has just set and it's a very beautiful evening. There might be a bit of road noise around, I apologise for that. I wanted to start by reading uh, a beautiful, very uh, famous poem called God's Grandeur by Gerard Manley Hopkins. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. Why do men now not wreck his rod? Generations have trod, have trod, have trod, and all is seared with trade bleared, smeared with toil, and wears man's smudge and shares man's smell. The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shod. And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness, deep down things, and though the last lights of the black West went, oh, morning, at the brown brink eastward springs. Because the Holy Ghost, with uh, the Holy Ghost over the bent world, broods with warm breast and, ah, bright wings. Many people talk about feeling close to God out in nature. What do they mean by that? What do you mean by that when you have those moments when you feel that God is close, that sometimes the Celtic people used to talk about places where the, the, the veil between uh, the divine and the natural is very thin. Uh, maybe up here in the mountains, uh, there's that sense of that. The air is crisper, the light is clearer, and uh, God's glory shines more clearly, perhaps. Uh, people who love the mountains uh, would say that anyway. Uh, in fact, we talk about, don't we, the mountaintop experience. Not that I like hanging around on mountains tops personally uh, it's a bit too cold for me um, but it's something about that clarity where are the places that you feel close to God uh, some people like a more enclosed safer warmer space like at their own garden or the botanic gardens uh, in New Zealand we have um, the birds the birds are uh, a beautiful kind of glimpse into or more uh, catching the, the sound of God's glory in the song that birds that in New Zealand the, the bell bird or the tui or the um, uh, our, our beautiful song birds their voices just kind of pierce through the air in a very clear uh, kind of a very connecting way for me and then uh, you get the little birds like the um, the fantail the piwaka waka which kind of flits in and out and and sometimes uh, reminds people or feel people feel that that's a way of us uh, someone who's passed away coming back to visit them uh, we kind of have these spiritual understandings of the natural world don't we and um, especially for uh, we call uh, internationally the first peoples peoples who are indigenous peoples uh, have a much stronger sense than us westerners of that um, thin veil between the tangible and the intangible uh, that creation is um, it's not that one is less real than the other, it's that they are both real and this concept of beauty, the human appreciation of beauty, 
seems to touch through the realities. An appreciation of beauty, whether it's a, a human creativity or God's hand at work in the created world, makes our souls sing, doesn't it? So why is that? Why is it that creation reveals God's glory? The Apostle Paul believed that just looking around at creation should be enough to convince people of the existence of God. He wrote in Romans 1, 20, uh, Ever since the creation of the world, God's eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things he has made. And we know that to be true, don't we? Um, in a multiple of ways, the Bible describes the ways in which the created universe reveals the glory, the nature, the power of God. The Psalms tell of it over and over. The heavens are telling the glory of God. The firmament proclaims his handiwork, the stars. Uh, and then all other things uh, are capable of praising God. It's an interesting idea, isn't it? But it's a very biblical, strong biblical um, claim that all living things are capable of praising God, even perhaps the rocks, the stones, the earth itself. Um, the Christian mystical tradition has had a rich appreciation of the voice of the natural world, and many of our songs express that. It was interesting, I was fascinated to read this um, part from uh, Martin Luther. Uh, sometimes the some aspects of the Reformation kind of cut people off a bit from creation, but Luther himself had this real um, sense that God uh, was with all creatures, flowing and pouring into them, filling all things. Uh, this wonderful quote from Luther, that the power of God must be essentially present in all places, even in the tiniest leaf. Isn't that lovely? I talk in my study about a theologian called Joseph uh, Sittler. He was quite an influential uh, character in the voice in the world of eco-theology by uh, kind of talking about this inner nature of things, the sense of the grace of creation. And he called people away from that triumphalist or rational theologies and advocated kneeling down on the earth before the lilies of the field in gentle contemplation, beholding them, Withdrawing any claims driven by willpower, waiting and watching and wondering in order to catch sight of this uh, dearest freshness uh, that um, I read in the poem. So what is it that you, uh, what, what is it that stirs your heart? Uh, the questions in our study today are um, in study number two. Uh, invite you to do journal or discuss or maybe draw Describe a moment when you could almost hear the voice of creation telling the glory of God. Not with the truck. And maybe take uh, Joseph Sittler's advice and kneel on the ground to have a good long look at a tiny little thing. Any little thing will too. How does this humble little thing express something of God? <laughs> a dog chasing a cat. 
Um, I'm also suggesting that you might like to get creative by using your own creativity. Uh, what are some forms of creativity at your disposal, whether it's in the garden or whether it's using your own uh, talents at, at maths or formulas or obviously colour uh, or maybe um, uh, baking or whatever it is that you uh, like to get creative to express something of nature's revealing of God. I'm inviting you to uh, look up an animal which is on the endangered species list. Find out where it lives, what it needs in its habitat. Find out what's special and unique about this creature. I invite you to pray for it and for the people that are fighting to save it. And uh, lastly, I'm inviting you to think about Paul's argument in Romans 1.20 that seeing the beauty and glory of the universe should be enough to spark faith in God. Hello, hi, I'm Sylvia Purdy and this is uh, our third study, um, the fourth of my videos on uh, my study, Life, the Universe and God, Studies in Ecotheology. Number three, which is called Creation is Entrusted to Human Care. When I've recently interviewed people who are leading their churches in caring for the environment, I asked them if they felt that God was calling them into this. Pretty much all of them said, oh, I hadn't thought of it like that before. A couple of them said, yes, actually, they did feel personally called. But all of them said that the most important thing is that the whole church is called by God to care for creation. One guy said, that is our first calling. Our first calling. What did he mean by that? He went on to talk about Adam, right back in the Garden of Eden. Adam, formed from the earth, called by God to till the soil. To understand our responsibility for the universe, we go back to the beginning, which for Christians is Genesis 1. After God created the heavens and the earth, God made humanity in his image. He gave them the plants for food, and he gave them dominion over every other living thing. This word, dominion, has been at the heart of the issue ever since. What did God mean by dominion? And then there's what the Bible says, and then there's what people have assumed that it says. Does Genesis 1.28 mean that the earth is given to humanity to do with what we like? Yeah, nah. Are people given ownership of the earth? Certainly not. Go back to Genesis 1, read it again. In that flow of the seven days of creation in Genesis 1, how is God ordering creation and humanity's place in it? One important part of the ordering of creation in Genesis 1 is the seventh day. Don't forget the seventh day rest. Sabbath. Because God rested on the seventh day, this became part of the God-given way of things, to rest and to let the earth rest. There was much reflection during our COVID-19 lockdown on how it was for many people a Sabbath time, and for the planet as well, a rest from pollution. 
How was the lockdown for you? Did you rest? Even through the anxiety and stress, did you experience it as a Sabbath? In the study, I quote from one Reverend Ryan who suggests that maybe it's time to willingly yield to God's principles, including the Sabbath, before the world falls apart. In the study, I bring in the thinking of theologians who redefine dominion in terms of stewardship. Creation is, I quote, entrusted to humanity who are responsible for its safekeeping and tending. Stewardship is a deeply biblical concept rooted in Genesis 2.15. Here we are, back to Adam again. The Lord God took the man, Adam, and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it. The word till is perhaps more about serving than digging. Serving with, conserving. The word keep, and I quote, uh, conveys the idea of keeping the dynamic qualities of the thing being kept. A rich, full and fulfilling keeping. The word steward and stewardship takes us uh, back to Jesus uh, talking about the tenants or the servants in his parables, which emphasize human responsibility to God for caring for the land and for the gifts that we have been entrusted with. Douglas Hall describes stewardship as the vocation that God intended for the human creature in the midst of God's good creation. Stewardship. A central issue in this is who owns what? Western society is based on the concept of private ownership of land and of natural resources. Our consumer society is based on the notion that you are what you buy. Do people own the planet? Can we carve it up and use its resources? This is where this central conviction in the Christian faith is so vital. Psalm 24 begins, The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, the world and those who live in it. The Bible makes it very clear again and again that God is creator and the universe as creation means that it belongs to God, not to us. All we hold is gift. The environment is not ours by right of purchase. We are tenants. God is the landlord, the Lord of all the land. In every environmental issue and in, in every decision we make, both personally or collectively, we are grappling with the central question of what is ours, what is mine, and what we hold in trust for the benefit of others. One person in my interview told me about conversations with his work colleagues where he was trying to persuade them of the benefits of electric cars. And yet, they keep buying expensive petrol cars. I can't understand, he said. They are aware of the problem of carbon emissions, but they just think it's their right. I've worked hard, they say. It's my money to spend how I like. What is a Christian response to this attitude? 
How is it for you? I'm inviting you in this study to reflect on ownership and stewardship. <laughs> Make a list of the things you own and the resources you can use. Bird. What does it mean for you to own these things? Do you believe that they ultimately belong to God? And what difference would that make? Stewardship of planet Earth is our first calling. It is a responsibility entrusted into our hands by God, not to use for our own benefit whatever we can get our hands on, but to work the land and to work with the land for the good of all living things and for the good of generations who will come after us. I hold myself accountable to God for what I do in my lifetime. And I hold myself accountable to my great-grandchildren for what I did at this critical time in Earth's history. What am I doing to protect God's precious creatures? How does the way I live express what I believe? Pray with me, eh? Open your hands. Lord God, Creator God, you hold us at this challenging time. Give, give us clear conviction about what you are calling us to do. Lead us. Lord, guide us. Show us how to care for your creation in the places we live, in the work we do, in our conversations and in our worship. And lead us, we pray, into rest at the end of each day and in each week, into times of Sabbath restoration. May we be Sabbath people, people of lightness in our work. May we be signs of restoration and recovery. We offer you again all that is in our hands, all we own, all we love, all we do, for your glory. Amen. Hi, this is Sylvia Purdy here doing study number four in Life, the Universe and God. I'm sitting on the road, which if anyone drives past is going to be a little awkward. Um, but uh, there's uh, a new uh, bit of subdivision going on here. So that's our backdrop for this study, which is entitled Creation is Marred by Human Sin. I read in study two a poem by Gerard Manley Hopkins, God's Grandeur. It expresses vividly both the glory and the suffering of creation. The poem asks why humanity fails to heed God's rule, wreck his rod, which is expressed in human inflicted damage to the natural world. 
and all is seared with trade, bleared, see, smeared with toil, and wears man's smudge and shares man's smell. The soil is bare now, nor foot can feel being shod. The metaphor of the soil being stripped bare, smeared with oil, and trampled underfoot by boots is a powerful one. Since this poem was written 150 years ago, humanity has invented more and more ways to blear and smear the earth. And now we have big diggers and uh, tractors and trucks to help with that. Gerard Manley Hopkins' hope that nature is never spent is in our day being sorely put to the test. Hopkins also points to a loss of humanity when foot cannot feel the soil. The poems suggest this as a form of broken relationship which can yet be restored by the grace of God. We describe these things theologically in our language of sin, fall and broken covenant. The Bible includes the created universe in the covenant relationship of God and humanity. The earth is not merely a backdrop for the saving work of God, but is an active partner in covenant. Going back to Genesis, Genesis 3, the fall of Adam and Eve, their fall from grace, initiates a broken relationship between people and the earth. You remember that uh, the, the snake is cursed and the woman's relationship with the snake is cursed and Adam's relationship with the soil and the plants is cursed and there are thorns and thistles and animals are killed for the skins to dress Adam and Eve. Yet the Bible continually reaffirms God's hope for the world, beginning with the first covenant, the rainbow covenant of Genesis 9, which God makes not only with Noah and his family, but with all the animals as well. Scripture is a long, complex story of promises made and broken. God's covenant relationship with the people of Israel was smashed literally in Exodus 32, even if it, just as it had been formed. The continuing rebellion of Israel as they turn aside from God to other gods had devastating implications for their environment. Uh, the prophet Isaiah expresses this powerfully in chapter 24. Uh, Isaiah writes, The earth lies polluted under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed, lords, broken the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. God uses natural disasters, including plagues, I might add, to try to get through to the people. The natural world in the Old Testament is an agent of God's action, a means of God's communication, part of God's covenant, and a victim of human sin. In the New Testament, God's covenant relationship is extended to all of humanity through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And the natural world witnesses to this covenant. Paul had a vision glimpsing the suffering of creation, which he describes as the cries of birth pangs, as though the whole universe is deeply involved in the process of salvation. The pollution and degradation of our world is far beyond any destruction the biblical authors experienced. But it is not hard to imagine, I think, what Jesus or Paul might have had to say about our world today. 
So our study today is on human sin and the implications for uh, the environment and the implications for our faith and uh, the implications for our life. Uh, I've got some uh, pointers in there. I uh, talk about the uh, planetary boundaries uh, model of understanding uh, the global ecosystem, including the atmosphere, uh, and um, that that's uh, a kind of a secular model which really reflects an idea of transgression and uh, the consequences of human sin. I do a little talk about the pangolins. If you don't know what a pangolin is, read up about it uh, and their possible role in the COVID pandemic and uh, how this um, might, yeah, it's just an interesting example. I, I got quite into the pangolins. I read up all, all, all of them and what happened in China in that wet market that uh, triggered uh, the COVID pandemic. And I uh, ask you some interesting questions there. And I suggest that you pray a prayer of confession. Uh, just to finish today, I just wanted to read um, from that, um, that quote from Ernst Conradi, who is a South um, African, South African theologian. He's talking about the kind of the role of um, this kind of deep drama, the sort of central drama of the Christian faith, the way that the Christian worldview understands the entire kind of dynamic of history and what it means to be human and what it means to be in the universe. And I think this is great stuff. He talks about a plot uh, which is best captured by the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. For Christians, the plot of this drama is essentially one of creativity, radical distortion and redemption, of creation and new creation, of construction, destruction and reconstruction, of freedom, oppression and liberation, of relatedness, of alienation and reconciliation, of life, death and new life. Do those words ring true for you? What do you think about, the, he's kind of describing these kind of threefold patterns, creation, destruction, and recreation, all at its heart, the cross and resurrection of Christ. He, Conradi, uh, um, goes on to say that the environmental crisis is a contemporary manifestation of the legacy of human sin. So I'll leave you there. That was a short one today. But let's just um, pause in a prayer of confession to close. Dear Lord, there's much at this time that... Uh, is confusing and distressing. Lord, teach us again the big story that we are part of so that the deaths and destruction in our time may be part of your glorious story of resurrection. Bring us to confession personally and collectively where our own choices have contributed to our global problems. 
through your forgiveness, release new energy, compassion, and conviction in us, we pray. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, good morning. This is Sylvia Purdy here, recording uh, six, uh, session five, uh, study five in uh, life, the universe, and everything. As you can see, it's been snowing. It is an utterly magical morning. We woke to a quiet white world with fat snowflakes drifting gently down. A snowflake lands on you, and for a moment you can see it sparkle, and you can feel its coldness, and then it melts on your skin, and then evaporates. Surely water and the different forms it comes in surely is one of God's most amazing and important creations. Snow, rain, clouds, rivers, oceans, the water that comes out of our kitchen taps, the water we drink. We are mostly made of water. Our bodies are more water than anything else, so I'm told, as though my hard bones and waterproof skin is really just one big water bottle. Māori people talk about their tribal rivers like I am the river and the river is me. Our bodies connect us with our environment. Our bodies are part of creation. We are creatures. The Christian church has always been a bit ambivalent about bodies and createdness. You might like to do a bit of an overview of what the Bible has to say about the human body. You will find ambivalence, a range of attitudes. The Bible teaches that we are so much more than our physical bodies and our brains. And yet Jesus healed people's bodies, so he obviously thought them worth the bother, uh, worthy of being well and strong. Paul affirms the body is God's temple, a living sacrifice, and his classic, we are all parts of one body teaching raises up each and every part of the human body as important. But there is also struggle in scripture with pain and the sins of the flesh. And Central to Paul's thinking is his conviction that in our bodies we share with Jesus in his resurrection, his crucifixion. In our bodies we share with Jesus in his crucifixion and so we share in his resurrection. Paul fought against a dualism that started to creep into the early church, which said that if Jesus is God, then he can't really have had a normal body. He can't really have felt pain. He can't really have died. This dualism has plagued Christian thinking ever since. And in our church today, we're not that big on the physicality of Jesus or the physicality of the resurrection. Most people imagine heaven as a disembodied state. Eternal souls wafting around in another dimension. The thing is, how we understand our own bodies flows over into how we understand the rest of creation. If our bodies don't really matter in the big scheme of things, then neither does the earth. The challenge for Christian eco-theology is finding an authentic biblical place to affirm both that we are part of creation and also that we are citizens of heaven.
Do we truly belong here on earth? How you answer that question will shape your relationship with the environment. Me, I want to have it both ways. I want dual citizenship, please, Lord. Can I belong here on planet Earth and can I belong in your kingdom? I see it as vitally important for Christian people to hold these two belongings together. I personally don't think that God is going to provide us with an escape pod from the troubles of the world. We are in this together. I also believe in a restoration, a divine eternity, a great spaciousness. I believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come, as our ancient creeds express it. But that's just me. What, what do you think? Do you belong here on earth? Or are you just passing through? Or is this world all there is? In the study, I'm asking you to talk about what Jesus meant when he said that those who follow him are in the world, but not of the world. What does that mean to you? I'm also suggesting that you get out pen and paper and have a go at drawing life, the universe and God in the simplest possible way. So here's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to, to uh, draw a circle for the earth, a stick figure for humanity, and a heart shape for God. Now, don't worry about it looking good or getting it right. There's no wrong answer. I'm asking you to play around with these three big ideas in these three simplest of shapes. How might they interact, overlap, or be a part on your piece of paper? Then, if you're getting into it, you can take some time to draw or write a more complex picture of how you see these fundamental relationships between God, creation, and humanity. Write down maybe any key words or Bible verses that come to mind, and what feelings come up for you as you do this. For us in Aotearoa, a Māori understanding of these relationships is so important. For Māori, it is totally obvious that people are part of creation. We are all connected through whakapapa. Māori link back through ancestry to the land itself and all other things in this land. How do you connect with the natural world? Ecotheology claims that we are related to all things, both spiritually and physically. We are people in relationship, not just here and now, but through time. We are a link in a long chain. We belong because we are all family, God's family. Our prayer for the study is a silent one. You might like to get out any pictures you've drawn or words you've written and sit quietly with them. Ask God how he feels about the world all the people and all the creatures in it. Be still and aware of how you are connected through Christ to heaven and to us. Hello again, this is uh, Sylvia Purdy here with uh, study six of Life, the Universe and God. 
You probably have never experienced a fresh snowfall in the native bush, what we call it in New Zealand, uh, our beautiful beech forest. Um, I brought you up here right into the bush, partly because I needed the bike ride to warm up, um, but also partly because I'm sure we'll um, be interrupted by some birds and it's very quiet. On a morning like this, it's not that hard to imagine God restoring and remaking everything. Chapter study six is the story leads to recreation. So if you've been following our series, uh, so far, so good. The key theological ideas discussed so far uh, raise plenty of issues for debate, but I hope could be affirmed by many, or if not most Christians today. The doctrine of ultimate hope for creation, however, is highly controversial. Different strands in the church hold divergent convictions and expectations, and these have significant impacts on how local churches understand and engage with their environment. At the risk of oversimplifying a complex debate, it is possible to picture this as a continuum. At one end is a highly apocalyptic theology, which could be described as the end is nigh. There we go, you can see up the track. There we go. There's the end is nigh up there. And in the opposing corner, down the hill, is the perspective that could be described as there's no plan B. The no plan B position is expressed uh, vividly by the indomitable Thomas Berry, who he's passed away now, but uh, at age 92, he argued that the planet Earth is a one-time endowment. Earth came into being as a moment which will never occur again. For if the life process is wantonly, wantonly extinguished, then the brilliant sequence of transformations, as you see around you, will never be available again. Theologians down that end of the continuum advocate a vision of eschatology which is fully incorporated into life on earth. Here's a, an example. Heaven is not a place in the sky, but rather God's dimension of what we think of as ordinary reality. God's people must be new creation people here and now, giving birth to signs and symbols of the kingdom on earth as in heaven. We are God's agents participating in God's mission in the renewal of the present. That's what I'm just calling the no plan B position. At the other end of the spectrum is the end is nigh perspective, which is promoted especially by conservative American church leaders. This point of view is summarized like this. Our, our present planet is not that significant and is ultimately slated for an abrupt and for many imminent end. Either because it is abandoned or destroyed once divine judgment occurs and all people are either in heaven or hell, or because it has been miraculously transformed through divine power and become the eternal home of the righteous. Compared to this cosmic drama of end times, I quote, catastrophic climate change and environmental deterioration do not compete for concern. So, trying to address carbon emissions or climate change is pointless. 
a distraction from the truly important issues of personal salvation and eternal life. Well, in between these two positions, thankfully, there is a range of theology about the ultimate Christian hope and the destiny of creation. Sorry, the camera's wobbling. I am perching it against a tree. Here are some uh, perspectives in this range. Kiwi theologian and leader at Laidlaw College, Mark Keown, writes, The Bible is emphatic. There will be an end to this age initiated by the return of Jesus. The Bible speaks of a new heaven and a new earth which merge into one and in which God will dwell with his people. Theologian Ernst Casemann calls for a radical and urgent hope of the apocalyptic gospel of revolutionary judgment and the call to solidarity and service in the world. He writes, this is nothing short of the liberation of the cosmos from the powers of sin and death. Barbara Rossing, uh, she advocates for the importance of imagination for Christian hope of a new creation that is both transcendently new and yet in continuity with this creation, since it is the renewal of this world. So, draw an imaginary line across your room between these two poles. At one end is the no plan B position, where the earth you have is all there'll ever be. At the other end is the end is nigh position where you believe that God will utterly transform the earth in ways you, we cannot imagine. Find a place to stand or explore standing at different points and get into that perspective for a moment. If you're in the room with other people, talk about it. Talk between yourselves. What are the different perspectives? What we hope for shapes what we work for. I like this quote. If our vision for the future is our vague, disembodied state that has no place for trees and flowers and mountains, lakes and fascinating animals and insects, then it is likely that we will not attach much value to them in the present. Despite differences, Christian theology points beyond the destruction and suffering of present experience to a future of hope in which God's good creation is restored, redeemed, and renewed. Eco-theology calls for a robust hope in the rich diversity of God's purposes for creation and for the inclusion of all living things in God's intentions for the age to come. One of our most important verses in this regard is Romans 8, particularly uh, Romans 8.21, where Paul writes about creation groaning to be set free from its bondage to decay into glorious freedom. Spend time picturing this. Try and get as much detail as you can. What would it look, what would the world look like? if we were set free from bondage to decay. Oh, other people walking on a tree. 
Sorry, I had to uh, interrupt my video uh, because some people, family walked past wondering what on earth I was doing standing in the middle of the woods talking to my laptop. So, imagine what creation would look like if it was set free from its bondage to decay into glorious freedom. I just wanted to close with this prayer from Revelations 21. Christ, seated on the throne of heaven, says, Look, I am making all things new. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. You who are thirsty, here is the gift. Water outpouring, the water of life flowing from the spring. From the deep at the dawn of creation to the spring of life making all things new, come Lord Jesus, come renew the face of creation. Amen. A beautiful mountain stream. There it is. There is the beautiful mountain stream. Under an extraordinary beautiful mountain. Actually, you can't quite see the mountain. It's behind those trees over there. Uh, this is just one of the most astonishingly beautiful sights, really, to be seen. The snow on the beech trees. I'm going to pop the laptop on a snowy log and hopefully you can hear me over the water and the bellbirds. Sorry about the big puffer jacket. Okay, conclusion, last video. Right, um, in my uh, studies this year I'm doing some interviews of people, on my leg, um, interviews with people asking them about their motivation to be involved in ecological mission. Uh, so I just wanted to, um, mainly for this concluding uh, video, to uh, tell you some of the things that people have told me. So this is all from one, of, uh, one group that is leading in this area in Christchurch. So here is one answer to the question, why do you do ecological mission as a church? The motivation to get involved is because I do believe that it's the right thing to do and a natural expression of faith in God. And I guess I'm wanting to do it not just because it is popular in the secular world, but actually it is driven out of a theological motivation that this is the right thing to do. And someone else uh, chipped in. This whole looking after the environment is very hip and very mainstream. But I think the difference as Christians is, I just think there's a lot of hopelessness about it, she said. And uh, if you listen to all the worst case scenario stuff out there, it's really easy to be like, well, what's the point? You know, what's the point of planting 20 trees? How's that really going to help? She talked about going to an Arosha hui and hearing from Christian people involved in caring for creation and coming away thinking, the point of difference was that they have been living in hope. That really stuck with me. I, I think, you know, they actually have hope. We have hope in what we are doing because we have an all-powerful God. Because otherwise it would feel too hard. And it comes to that theological basis 
I think that's a really important message for the church as well, given the fear-mongering that's out there, she said. I asked the group what they would like to say to other churches, and here's how one man responded. It has to start from a theological understanding, because otherwise, if you're only based in practical uh, work or appreciating beauty or respect for, uh, for other Maori culture or the environment, I think that the depth of that runs out pretty quick, he said. But when you understand that there's a theological basis for this to happen from, a theological, a biblical principle to work from, that sets it in its correct place and then things can build from that space. Then you build in other parts and we bring in our individual stories, like uh, he talked about understanding that he's a little bit more connected to the land than I first thought I was, he said. So that would be, for me, a focal point, going back to the biblical base and saying, this is the place that this comes from. And then he recommends that, uh, he would recommend that churches start some practical stuff. Go and do some tree planting or something. Then another person added, it's not just doing tasks to try to save the doomed planet kind of thing. Starting from a theological perspective makes all the things we do an act of worship. Isn't that beautiful? Couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, it was uh, great. Uh, so uh, this is my wrap-up. This uh, study has explored six key themes in Christian theology that flow from the foundation conviction foundational conviction that the universe is made by God. Christian faith understands the natural world in which we live to be inherently valuable with an important place in God's loving purposes. Through the study, I've asked you questions to uh, get into what the implications of this might be for our daily living, for our ethics, and for our mission. And so this last uh, session is um, asking you to reflect on your calling. Does this connect with you? What, if so, what might you do about it? How do we express our faith as individuals, families, local churches, and communities? A faith perspective seeks the face of God while at the same time opening our eyes to the reality of living in our time and place. Looking around at the state of God's creation is not for the faint-hearted. There are many serious problems facing planet Earth. Much that we value is threatened. Eco-theologians are calling the church to greater involvement in caring for creation through sustainable living, practical ecology, and a commitment to creation priorities at every level of decision-making and planning. How Christian people respond in action will be an expression of what we know of God. This quote to finish. Today's new adventures in sustainable living within the earth are not just practical ways of avoiding extinction. They are also adventures into the incredible life of God. So my questions for you as we finish are, what is God calling you to attend to in your own home and work, your choices, your family life, in order to care for creation? 
I wonder uh, which um, environmental issue that you might feel a sense of urgency about. Somehow that's one of the ways in which God gives us calling is stirring something that we actually care about. And what might you do about that? God has entrusted particular places into our hands, uh, places of earth to stand, uh, as suggested at the beginning, to dig our toes into um, or dip our fingers into. I wonder which particular pieces of creation that God has entrusted to you to look after. The land, the towns, the garden, the forests near you, the rubbish dumps. Where are the places you care about? And lastly, how might your local church better live, better live out its faith and mission in relation to creation? And uh, do you, what might role might you have in that? So, thank you for joining me. It's been fun. I've enjoyed doing these uh, videos up here with the billboards and the snow in the mountains. So, just to finish a, uh, uh, a poem of praise. Great, great is our God. Lift, lift up your head. Look up, look. Glimpse the greatness hidden in the air, carved in stone, curled in leaf. Praise, drag gratitude from the soles of your feet beyond. Utter astonishment, shooting beyond your words, exhausting your language, splashing your imagining with infinity. Wonder, simple awe, jaw, dropping, heart-stopping beauty. Stand, stand in awe, drop everything, for great is our God.